for all of us, we have this uh, mechanism, this instinct in us when we face a serious threat or a stressful situation. And most broadly, we can break that reaction that we have into two categories, fight or flight. I'm sure you're familiar, fight or flight. Maybe our first instinct, our default position is to drop the gloves, to go knuckles up as soon as a threatening situation comes. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe our first instinct is to, to duck and run. And I can say from my own experience, I have gotten this wrong far too many times in my life. Even looking back to my childhood, I think of playground fights over absolutely nothing where I sought to solve problems with my fists instead of a million other good options. But I can also think of other times in my life, too often, where you know, a stressful, threatening situation happens and I stick my fingers in my ears and go, la, 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 and I don't listen. I, I run away. I avoid the situation. And so whether this is me personally, whether you can resonate, I think we can agree that Christians throughout history have often gotten this wrong too. We, you know, some want to fight over everything, absolutely anything. You know, the music in our services, the volume of that music, you know, what version of the Bible we use, what kind of schooling we have for our kids, homeschool, private school, public school, you know, even a current example, whether to wear masks or not. And now I'm not saying this to ruffle feathers. I'm not trying to offend anybody. Because these things are things worth considering. They're things to evaluate. Right? You could say these are important things. But what I'm talking about is what our default position. Do we go into attack or defense mode? Right? So that's one side. Some want to fight about everything. Others, reflecting this culture of absolute tolerance, would argue that Christians should never disagree about anything. They would say, even important theological matters. So in other words, one group wants to fight about everything, and another group won't stand up for anything. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in Acts. We're going to be going through a large passage, uh, the majority of chapter 15. And we're going to see that there's disagreement over doctrine, right, or the principles of the Christian faith, when I say doctrine. And we're going to see that there's disagreement. We're going to see that there's uh, debate. We're going to see defenses made. We're going to see decisions that come out of that defense. And then we're going to see delivery of those decisions. And so we're going to be working through this passage. And you'll see that no matter who you are, this is relevant to you. We all need to know when is the time that we need to take a stand And when are the times that we need to let unity prevail? In other words, and this is our big idea this morning, this is our big idea, all right, kids, adults, everybody, as Christians, we need to learn what is worth fighting for. As Christians, we need to learn what is worth fighting for. And so maybe you're sitting there at home and you're thinking, is this relevant to me? Does this matter? I'm not an elder. I'm not on staff. I don't read uh, complex theology textbooks for fun. But we'll see as we work through this passage, this does matter. Doctrine is important. We'll be reminded, and we'll see later, the whole church was actually involved in this discussion and the decisions made. Now I get to, as you can probably already tell, this is a sensitive and divisive topic. In and amongst itself, this can be divisive, but that's the opposite of what this passage is going for. It's 2021. We just got out of 2020. 
And so you may be approaching this conversation with fresh wounds. And I understand that. Maybe still open wounds. And so we need to approach this conversation from a position of humility. Absolute humility. You're going to see throughout the sermon, I'm going to reference a book a number of times. Uh, I'm going to quote from an author, Gavin Ortland, uh, And he writes this book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And it's a, it's a great book. Uh, I read it last year, and I, I find it particularly helpful as we navigate this kind of uh, conversation. And so the first of a couple quotes from him, uh, we talk about humility. It says this, Humility teaches us to navigate life with a sensitivity to the distinction between what we don't know and what we don't know we don't know. Pride makes us stagnant. Humility makes us nimble. And so in other words, we don't know everything. And we don't even know what we don't know sometimes. And so let's all walk into this conversation. Let's walk into this passage with humility, ready to learn what God would have for us. And so as I said, we'll be in Acts chapter 15, and we'll just be working through it piece by piece. We're going to start with verses 1 through 5. Let's read God's word together. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So as soon as we get into our passage this morning, we see disagreement. And that's our first point of the sermon. The first point you can write down, disagreement. Now this was disagreement that was serious enough for Paul and Barnabas to debate over it. Right? Last week, our passage ended, uh, chapter 14, verse 27. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So that's the context of this conversation. The door of faith had been opened to the Gentiles. Now, who were the Gentiles? We've talked about this a number of times. The Gentiles are not Jewish. They're the people that are not Jews. Throughout Old Testament history, the Jews were God's covenant people. And throughout the Old Testament, there's implicit and explicit references that salvation was for all, that that there would be a time when God's chosen people would not be bound by race or geography. And this is good news for us, unless you're Jewish, this is really good news, that that this could be extended to us. And so as as you read through the Old Testament, you see promise after promise that this is going to happen. And then it does. When God, in his mercy, sends Jesus to earth. Right? He sends his own son to come and live as a man to redeem humanity. Because all of humanity, Jew, Gentile, everybody, has sinned. You and I included. And so God sent his son to the world, to redeem the world, to come and live a perfect life, a life that none of us could ever live, and to pay the penalty for sin, which is death. 
So he paid that penalty. He died a horrible, torturous, painful death, took the weight of our sin on his shoulders, and he credited his righteous life, his perfect life for us. That's, this is a crazy exchange. Right? If you've heard this a hundred times, don't, don't let this go over your head. That is nuts, honestly. And it's unbelievable. Jesus rose from the dead. He was killed. He rose from the dead, proving that God's wrath had been satisfied. The debt had been paid. The check had cleared. And as we saw when we first got into the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus says to his followers, tell the, this news, tell this good news to the world. And so this is where we're at. We're 15 to 18 years later, and this is what's happening. His, Jesus' followers are sharing this good news with the world. But as we can see, even after this period of time, the first century church and us are asking, now what? What must we do to be saved? And so if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I, first of all, I'm glad you're here. But I hope that you see clearly this morning what it means to be a Christian and that you would seriously consider what that means. And so this is what the debate was. The debate was this. How can someone be saved? And uh, some were saying, is circumcision necessary? You know, not just circumcision. How about following this whole mosaic, the whole Jewish law. Now, circumcision was the outward sign of the law, but in verse 5 we see that it's, it's more broad. It's following the whole law of Moses. This is not a one-custom issue. And so this disagreement here leads to debate, and it rightly leads to debate. This is a question about how we can receive this, that, this free gift, that exchange of righteousness for sin. So it's a big question, and that's, this is why it's worth debating. That's the first real takeaway I want you to take home, is there's some things that are first-rank doctrines. There's some things that we must get right. And so these first-rank doctrines are things surrounding the defense and proclamation of the gospel, absolute essentials. If we get this wrong, we blow it. Now, that's not to say things are only important and not important. An example would be the denominations within the church, right? So we could look at uh, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and they interpret some things different than us, uh, enough things that are still important that we have two different churches, but we can still affirm that we've got the essentials the same. We've got the gospel right. And so I can look at my Presbyterian brother and sister and call them a brother and sister because we agree on the main things the gospel. And so this is what we see, though, that this is a first-rank issue. They're talking about the requirements for salvation. This is critically important to get right. So I have a little illustration. I don't know if this will be helpful for you. Karen's going to throw a little picture on the screen of a tool. This is a square. I was planning on bringing one in, but you probably wouldn't be able to see it as well as you do on the screen. So a square is a very simple tool, as you can see, and what it does is it lets you reference one side and give you a perfect 90-degree angle uh, so that you can actually make the things that you're making square. It's really handy. But some squares are not actually square. You know, they're faulty. You could spend hundreds of dollars on one of these things to make sure it is just incredibly perfect and accurate. 
And so if you're using a square that isn't actually square, it's going to do you more harm than good. It's going to cause more problems than it solves. Things aren't going to fit together. Things aren't going to work out well. You're going to drill the hole that you marked from the square in the wrong spot. And so similar, I mean, you could use whatever illustration you want, a ruler where the measurements are wrong or a dictionary where the definitions are wrong. But you can see if you get these things wrong, if your square isn't square, they affect everything and nothing works. And so this is, I find helpful to think about the gospel in this way. If we get the gospel wrong, we have a massive problem. If we get the essentials wrong, we've got a huge problem. Because if we said, oh, we need to earn our salvation through works or rituals, that would radically change the way that we live. We'd be living with a very different lens on life. And this is the difference between Christianity and other religions. We can't earn our salvation. We can't do good enough because we sin. We are fallen, broken people. But that's why the good news is so good. Jared Wilson, Jared C. Wilson, writes a book called Unparalleled, How Christianity's Uniqueness Makes It Compelling. And he says this, Christianity did not explode in growth in the first centuries because people had found in Jesus a new set of religious instructions. They had found, actually, that the perfection Jesus demanded, he also supplied to those who trusted him. They had found that the life Jesus promised, he actually delivered. And so this is why Paul and Barnabas have no small dissension and debate with those who were teaching a different gospel. Right? You can't even really call it good news. They were teaching a different doctrine. And so it's a big enough issue that they go to Jerusalem. It says they're sent by the church. So they go to Jerusalem. Along the way, they report all that God's done in saving the Gentiles. And so when they're in Jerusalem, all the elders, apostles, and later the whole church gather to consider this disagreement. This is famously known as a pivotal moment. It's in the middle of the book of Acts, and it gives light on what has happened in the past and especially what's about to happen in the future. And this is famously known as the Jerusalem Council where a defense of the gospel is made. And so we've seen a disagreement. Now we see a defense. And we'll see three different defenses. We'll see a defense from Peter. We'll see defenses from Paul and Barnabas. And then we'll see a defense from James. So first, Peter. Let's continue reading verse 6 to 11. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This is a powerful defense made by Peter. He, first of all, reports on what God did, what he saw with his own eyes. 
He says the proof is really in the pudding here. If you want a reminder of this whole scene, read back the last couple chapters in Acts, specifically chapter 10. But he also says this. It's an interesting way that he puts it. He says, you're putting a yoke on these Christians that they can't bear. And this yoke is requiring the Old Testament law. So as you can see on the screen, a yoke is this cross piece that goes between oxen in the field. It's a burden you carry, and it's a popular metaphor, illustration throughout the Bible on the burden, the weight that you carry. And so what Peter isn't saying is that the law is bad. He's saying that obedience to the law alone can't save. Like a yoke is not a bad thing, but if it's an unbearable burden, it's not a good thing. The law is important. The law is good. The law informed God's followers how to walk with integrity. But it's important to know the law doesn't solve the problem. It actually reveals the problem. And it's good. Peter doesn't say this saying, oh, these Gentiles, they can't bear this yoke that we bear. He says we can't either. That neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But this is good news. It's It's an unbearable yoke, but we don't have to bear it. Christianity offers an alternative to this unbearable yoke. Galatians 5.1 says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so the law is not sin here, but like sin, perfect adherence to the law is impossible and an unbearable burden. And amazingly, Jesus offers an alternative. He offers his own yoke, an easy, light yoke, to find rest. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so this is good news. This is the best alternative to an unbearable yoke you could ever imagine. And I know for a fact that many who are listening can resonate with those words, uh, labor and are heavy laden. I also know that every single person listening can resonate with carrying a burden of sin, an unbearable yoke, that apart from God's grace, we can do absolutely nothing about. And so maybe you're a Christian and you're hearing this, and you've heard this before, but that it's still the best news you've ever heard. And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never heard this before. But no matter who's listening, we have the same problem, the biggest problem in the world, and that is sin that separates us from God. And so we're left with two options. And so I'll pose those two options to you here. One, you could live a perfect sinless life, which you can't do. So that's, that's option one. Or option two, have Jesus' perfect righteousness credited to you. And how? By turning from sin and believing in Jesus, trusting him, accepting that free gift of grace, admitting that you're a sinner, that you've been carrying an unbearable yoke, an unbearable burden for your whole life, but that that can be lifted, that you can take on this easy, light yoke. And this is why the gospel, by definition, is good news. It's not faith plus a ritual. It's not 
faith plus works. And this is exactly what Peter shares. He says salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A famous verse, maybe a lot of the kids, you have this one memorized. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is good news, and this is what Peter reports. And so the next defense made is by Paul and Barnabas. Now Luke's uh, account of their report is short. It's one verse, uh, verse 12. Uh, it's a shorter record, but they report on everything that they've been up to, everything that they've been doing. They, uh, well, we've looked at what they've been doing. They've been taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so they probably told the story of walking through the mountains a couple times, you know, the, the conversion of Sergius Paulus, about Paul getting stoned and left for dead, about these crazy events that happen. But they report of what they've seen and know. We see that in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so we've seen a defense from Peter, we've seen a defense from Paul and Barnabas, and now we see a defense from James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's a leader in the Jerusalem church. And what's interesting, and what I want you to see, is he anchors his defense of this doctrine in God's promises through God's word. Let's read verse 13 through 18. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, okay, this is a complicated little turn of names here. So Simeon is another name for Simon, which is Peter's other name. So I know that's a bit of a hop, skip, and a jump. But Peter is who we looked at, verse 7 to 11, that report. So that's what he's referencing. So Simeon, also known as Simon, also known as Peter. Okay, we're on the same page. Uh, where were we? Okay, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So that's James's defense. That's his report that he makes. And this is a really important, the first nugget that we can pull out. We should anchor our defenses of doctrine in Scripture. We need to go to the Bible when we're considering these things. We can easily slip into an opinion debate. We can slip into pragmatism. But this is dangerous, especially when Scripture is clear on something. And so James cites Amos 9, 11 through 12, and a little bit of Isaiah 45, 21. But his point is this. He says, God's promises, God promises to restore David's fallen tent. And this is a prophecy that Jesus, a descendant of David, will restore this fallen relationship with God's people. How does he do this? Well, he does this, like we talked about, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he does this so that the remnant or the rest of mankind will be included in God's family, in God's people. 
Now, James could have gone a lot of directions. He could have cited a lot of different passages that point to a Savior uh, and point to salvation for the Gentiles. He could have gone to Isaiah 2, Jeremiah 12, Hosea 3, Zechariah 2, Zechariah 8. But in his saying, the prophets, in verse 15, he's saying that the Old Testament prophets agree that Gentiles are part of God's plan. And again, this is good news. We've seen disagreement, we've seen debate, we've seen defenses made, and now we see a decision. Verse 19, Therefore, this is James talking, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, this is a bit of a complicated bit here. Didn't we just talk about how uh, it was grace alone through faith alone, and then James lays out this list of requirements or rules? Well, let's look at these rules. Let's look at what James says and see how this both affirms God's grace and demonstrates grace to one another as he lays out this decision. So first, a decision affirming God's grace. In verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. There's no contradiction here. He's saying that that burden has come off, that it's through faith alone. He affirms this is salvation for the Gentiles, salvation for all. This may seem less radical to us now, but this is and was radical to the original audience. This is a statement that affirms God's grace. And then we see the rest of his decision is a decision that demonstrates grace. James lays out here a couple different things to abstain from, to avoid. But what he's laying out here are not steps for salvation. He's laying out practices to avoid because they would offend Jewish believers. It's important to understand there's not two categories of Christians here. He's saying we are part of one family, and so to guard the unity of the church, James makes these suggestions to the Gentiles. Now, it can be a little bit confusing to interpret exactly what he's trying to say with these, specifically when he talks about sexual immorality. We know sexual immorality is a sin. The word he uses here that Luke records is a very broad word. But a helpful principle to consider through all of this is that we need to look at what the Bible has to say about these things. And so we know from consistently throughout the Bible, sexual immorality is a sin. What he might have been meaning, specifically with that one in this category, is practices that would have been more commonplace or familiar to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were raised very different than the Jews who hear this same news. And so uh, some scholars have suggested maybe what he's referring to is intrafamilial relationships. And so saying to the Gentiles, hey, you may be used to this, but this will offend your Jewish brothers and sisters. But whatever he meant by uh, immorality, whatever he meant by all of them, the connection of all these things can be tied to pagan rituals that would be offensive to the Jews, but maybe uh, would be less offensive or not offensive to the Gentiles. And so what he's saying in verse 21 is that these cities where the Gentiles live have a strong Jewish population. 
And so it would be unloving to live in a way that would put barriers between the fellowship of the Gentiles and the Jews. There's no sense putting up a wall when the gospel is what broke down that dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it's not just one-sided that the, the Gentiles give up these rights and privileges of what they, want, what they can do so that the Jews won't be offended. That's a huge idea. But we also see that the, verse 21, from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so for the Gentiles, they could can, they can be part of this uh, hearing God's word read every Sabbath. Right? As long as these barriers aren't there that would divide these people up. And so this is actually an act of love and a demonstration of grace to give up these freedoms. So just like Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, this is considering the weaker brother. And so an example of this would be Josiah and I. I know you can't see Josiah. He's over here. Josiah and I, if he, uh, by his conscience, he could do something that was not sin to him, but he knew it would be offensive to me, it would be unloving for him to just keep on doing that around me because he could demonstrate that love by giving up that freedom as to not offend me. And this can be hard to do, but it doesn't have to be hard to do. We need to look at Jesus' example. Jesus laid down his freedom for our sake on the cross. And so we too can find joy in laying down our freedoms for others. And we can do this by God's help. So through this whole conversation, this whole discussion, we see that there's some things that are non-compromise, right? No compromise, the gospel. But there's other things where there needs to be much room for much grace. But this is a demonstration of the big idea. We need to know what is worth fighting for. And so I pray that we would really learn this and take this to heart. Verse 22 says this, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And before we get into the letter, just an important piece is what I talked about at the beginning. The whole church agrees. This is important. This is not just a staff decision. This is not just an elder decision. This is responsibility of the whole church. And so a letter is sent out with affirmation from the elders, from the apostles, and from the church, and as we'll see even in the letter, uh, from the Holy Spirit. And so we've seen a disagreement, we've seen a defense, we've seen a decision, and now we see the delivery. Let's read verse 23. So the following letter. The brothers, uh, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. You'll notice this is another one of those moments where there's a verse missing. Maybe you didn't notice. Uh, Verse 34 is not there. Some manuscripts uh, insert a verse there that says, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Seems like a later uh, addition was made because there seems to be a discrepancy. All of a sudden, Silas is back. But as we've looked at in Acts, they spend a lot of time walking, and so it, it doesn't need to be a discrepancy. As we, uh, next week, Lord willing, continue going through Acts, we'll see Silas shows up again, and uh, we can come to the conclusion that Silas left and he came back. But just so you're wondering why there's a verse missing. And so we see this letter go out uh, with delegate, delegates to deliver it. And I love the reaction, verse 31. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Did they grumble at these requirements based on the Levitical law? No, they were saved by grace through faith. They were welcomed into this family, and it's their love for their neighbor, for their brothers and sisters in Christ, that was enough to know what fights were worth having and what weren't. So Gavin Ortland again says this, Pursuing the unity of the church does not mean that we should stop caring about theology. But it does mean that our love of theology should never exceed our love of real people. And therefore, we must learn to love people amid our theological disagreements. This is what we see exemplified through this passage. Romans 14, 10 through 12 says this, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will stand before the judgment seat of God, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So Paul's reminder here to the Romans is a good reminder for us today. When we stand before Jesus one day, what are the fights that we will be glad that we had? And what are the ones that we'll be ashamed that we dug our feet in unnecessarily? Have we hurt the unity of the church because of pride or arrogance or ignorance? And we know too, though, we must be willing to stand up for what is of first importance, the gospel. As Paul later writes to the Corinthians, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Some things are worth fighting for. Some things are of first importance, as Paul calls it, and that's the gospel. So we need to balance this knowing what's worth fighting for with 
cherishing the unity of the church. So I'll admit, this is hard, but it is not impossible. We need to pray for God's help through this as we navigate fighting for what's right and unity. So I pray that that would be true for us, Heritage Grace. God has given us the glorious gospel to defend, but also the glorious gospel to unite. This is the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so let's close this sermon, let's close this time with another reminder from Gavin Ortland. says this, Some Christians are eager to defend sound doctrine. Well and good. But the unity of the body of Christ is, he says, is the unity of the body of Christ one of those doctrines we jealously guard? Friends, the unity of the church was so valuable to Jesus that he died for it. If we care about sound theology, let us care about unity as well. Let me pray. God, thank you for using us when we mess up over and over and over. Thank you for the glorious gospel that saves and transforms. God, I pray that we would be willing to disagree, that we would defend the gospel when necessary, that we would look to your word and the evidence that we see for the decisions that we make, that they would be decisions that affirm your grace and decisions that demonstrate grace. And that as we consider what hills are worth dying on and what others aren't, that we would respond in the same way that the Gentiles did, that that we would rejoice because of this encouragement. So God, help us as we pursue the unity of the church while also defending the gospel. Thank you for this privilege. God, we know we can only do it by your help. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.